Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. I got two hard rules I live by, Pop. I don't fuck with the devil, and I never do tag teams with blood relatives. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, this is so last month, but while I was off the grid, Richard Dawkins started a tweet storm by dissing Kafka's metamorphosis. <laughs> is he just trolling us at this point? <laughs> I like to think that he was thinking of exactly us, that he had listened to the episode and he was like, fuck these guys, I'm going to subtweet them. Uh, but wow, you were really off the grid. That feels like forever ago. Were you off the grid because just because Houston doesn't have power usually? No, <laughs> I mean, that's not why. No, I was camping in Big Ben and there was no, uh, there was no internet access or phone access. See the things you miss? You know, I know. Dawkins. This is why you shouldn't do that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but for uh, reals, like you didn't miss it, right? Like, doesn't it feel good to not be on the internet for a while? Oh my God, it's the best. Yeah. Like, it's so great. Now, like, you just realize, oh, all this stuff that I do pretty much every day, I don't actually care about. Yeah, it just, it's true. And <laughs> it doesn't matter in any way to your life. Like, it's right. Just, <laughs> Not at all. Right, exactly. Like, whatever is in the news cycle. No, it doesn't matter at all. And the problem is, like, I would like to live an internet life where I'm divorced from the news cycle. But but I, I can nonetheless look at things that I want to look at. Like, you know, I was today yeah. watching videos on lock picking because that's what I do. <laughs> and but but then I'm, I'm you lock you pick a lot of locks. I am not good at it. I have a little lock picking kit. There's this guy named the lock picking lawyer who has like this channel with millions of followers where all he does is pick locks and tell you how to do it. Do you but like he, rob houses? <laughs> is this no, a guilty I just, confession? I just break in and leave a note like I got in, just so you know, I can get in. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime I want, I can get in. I'm, I'm watching you, Sean Nicholas. Uh, <laughs> um, can I just read the Dawkins tweet, though? Oh, yeah. Were you aware of this when it happened? I was all over that cycle. <laughs> Kafka's Metamorphosis is called a major work of literature. Why? If it's science fiction, it's bad science fiction. If, like Animal Farm, it's an allegory, an allegory of what? Scholarly answers range from pretentious Freudian to far-fetched feminist. He's, he's looked at a lot of the scholarship in the <laughs> Metamorphosis, clearly. I don't get it. Where are the emperor's clothes? To, to even think that there's an answer, <laughs> it's so it's so ridiculous. It's just art. Like fucking like who asks that of art? You know, it's, like it's a fundamental misunderstanding of art. What, like I would pay though to see like a master class of Richard Dawkins discussing the great works of literature. Yeah, that, that, would, that would be amazing. Would it would be it would have a lot of unintentional comedy 
much like what we're going to discuss <laughs> in our opening segment. <laughs> Sorry, we were having an offline conversation about segways. <laughs> Tamler just hit me with that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if you have anything more to say about the Dawkins thing. Uh, I, all I was going to do was be kind of like snobby and say like, really Animal Farm? <laughs> like that's <laughs> that's his example. <laughs> If, like Animal Farm, it's an allegory. That was one of my favorite replies to this. Antoine Wilson, I don't know who that is, but if it's a rock opera, where are the songs? If it's a railroad track, what train would run on it? If it's a cheesecake, which part is the crust? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But it's art. That's the thing. And if you can't understand it, if you can't come up with a really tidy, like, I mean, we were saying this, I think on our episode, right? Like that we wanted to, you know, stay away from like, this is the definitive interpretation of the, right. the metaphor, right? Like right. that it, and it, yeah. And if you can't find value, uh, you know, it's, I don't think everybody has to agree that it's a great work of art, but, but like for other reasons. That and these are your people. These, these are your people. You're the scientismist or whatever, like scientisms. Uh, uh, <laughs> you're like, this is the kind of uh, company that you keep. If it's not rock hard science, then it doesn't, it doesn't exist and it has no value. No ontological That's, status. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's just re- remind our listeners that you worshipped at the feet of the new atheists for a while. And then I you did. went I in know, the no, com- no, 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 complete no. opposite direction, you know, decrying them. I'm a man of balance. I, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a man of reasonableness. You know, I like art. I like science. All right. Let's talk about uh, what is undeniably a great piece of art published in Personality and Individual Differences. Good, good journal, right? It's okay. Oral sex as infidelity detection. Yeah, we should say, by the way, so that you don't have to splice it in, what we're talking about in the main segment. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> we're going to be talking about apologies, something we wanted to talk about for a long time, but we're finally getting around to, to apologies. So this is an evolutionary psychology paper. Maybe the last one we'll ever discuss, because I don't think we can top this. Like, that's it. It's the end of an era for us, I think. <laughs> you, this kind of evolutionary psychology is just taken to its logical conclusion conclusion here don't don't uh underestimate uh, the power of, uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh no but this is what makes me this is what makes me extra mad is that evolutionary psychology like there is some good stuff like and and whenever we criticize it people who are like these evolutionary psych defenders are like why are you being so unfair but like this is just a terrible terrible study but it is it is so funny it is, it is. Uh, one of the funniest things I've read in a very long time. This is like up there with the Confederacy of Dunces. Like, <laughs> so the title again um, is, somehow I didn't write that Oral, down. Sex. Oral sex as infidelity detection. Yeah. I don't know. You want to describe it? Sure. I, it's, it's, there's a, it's a very brief paper. We'll put a link uh, to it. The argument is that... Well, look, oral sex exists, and specifically, cunnilingus exists from, you know, men doing it to women. So, obviously, there is an adaptive explanation for why it exists, and uh, what might that be? Well, if you know evolution, you know that there is a very, very clear function (laughs) that it might serve, and that is for the male to use as a way to detect the sperm of competitors. Yeah. So on on this account, there is a lot of sperm competition. I mean, there is sperm competition in the natural world where, you know, if multiple, Wait, <laughs> if multiple I- males are having sex with the same female, 
whoever sperm gets in there deeper and can swim faster is going to win. And so uh, presumably mammals have adapt adapted all sorts of uh, strategies, both physiological and perhaps psychological, to deal with this competition. Um, let me just read the quote. So informed by sperm competition theory, Thornhill hypothesized that oral sex performed by a man by his regular partner, cunnilingus, may function to detect the presence of rival semen following her sexual infidelity. Cunnilingus may allow men to taste and smell <laughs> rival semen <laughs> near or within the vagina. <laughs> like near. <laughs> <laughs> within the it's like, it's yeah. like a, a cream pie or whatever <laughs> providing cues to a woman's sex recent sexual his history that's the hypothesis that they set out to test yeah now um when uh, neuroskeptic tweeted this out the evolutionary psychologist jeff miller responded with an accusation that he was uh mocking this just because it's sex and he was basically sex negative saying "Ooh, it's gross and I just want to say, that's not why. That's not why this is ludicrous to me. But like, okay, let's just unpack this a little bit. If this is true, you have to have, um, I think, a theory as to what would happen if a man did detect rival sperm, and you have to have some theory that there there is some recognition that there is rival right. sperm in the woman. Right. And <laughs> that's the part that I got hung up. On. <laughs> They completely underspecify what's supposed to happen once you taste the funky spunk of, like, your best friends, you know, inside your Well, wife. no, not that, but just, like, how are you supposed to really know? Assuming it's not, like, you know, right afterwards, right? You well, know? That, this is the thing with the sperm competition theory is that y y it has to be under conditions where females have had sex in close temporal proximity or else it, it doesn't matter. So this has to be... Yeah, this was like, just to detect infidelity in general. No, it's it's literally like that's why they they say recent sexual history. It has to be there within the time that the sperm could be doing something, right? So there are these theories like that the the that the penis is shaped like you know as a mushroom shape because it confers the advantage of scooping out rivals rival semen. Um, right. So so but all of those really require that the 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 female be copulating within you know a matter of hours to days with other men so that so then what do you do though so what like what goes on here so you would i would think that you would need a conscious awareness that you've detected the sperm of somebody else and as far as i know that doesn't happen but then also like you would still have sex with the woman right. because it's better than nothing right like that's so exactly. that's why i thought like it has to be that it's the goal is more long-term here is to note, oh, I have a cheating uh, woman. That m means I might be a cuckold and raise a child that doesn't have my genes. And that's... Anguish. Yeah, but then but then there's no chance at really detecting this in, in the vagina. Well, that's <laughs> right. Yeah, so right. maybe we're phrasing this in terms <laughs> of a dilemma. <laughs> so, so okay, but, but here's the way that they test it because intriguing, but probably wrong, like I feel about the theory, the theorizing. Like I don't, I don't find... That it's compe a compelling. Well, no, I hypothesis. don't understand it because, like you said, like if you don't register it consciously, then you would have to register it unconsciously. Yeah, and therefore what? Like right. So here's the yeah. So like a lot of adaptations are obviously non-conscious. So you know it just so happens that whatever you know, like we behave in a certain way, I suppose. But like this one seems to require some level of awareness. But I, here's one way in which I can see like 
theorizing around this. So suppose that you do detect it at some level, like pheromones, scent, whatever. You don't consciously encode it, but there is something sort of niggling in you and you break up soon afterwards. But you don't know why, but like you, you just stop liking her as much. Right? Yeah, right. So I, that I would get, but that's more than the long-term thing. Not no, no, no. it still requires, the sperm competition thing still requires the presence of sperm. But you, you, but your breaking up could be in the long term, but it would be like that you con- consistently are tasting something and you're encoding so it somehow. how long are we talking about here? At what point do you stop being able to recognize? Because <laughs> I, I will personally say right now that I have never, to my knowledge, <laughs> uh, detected the scent of ribosemen. Yeah. So my understanding is that it can, it can be up to a few days that sperm are doing their work. But so like, you know, five days or something like that. But that doesn't but necessarily I, mean you can, that there is scent right. and that there is seminal fluid that you would taste. Like, so, but anyway, like this isn't even the paper, no. right? Like this <laughs> no. is, the, this is no. the, the hypothesis that has motivated right. the paper. Yeah. And I actually find the methodology to be the more ludicrous part of the paper. Because like, yeah. again, like I might be a disbeliever in the hypothesis, but, but then I'm like reading it and I'm like, oh, I wonder how they're going to test this. And so here, here is a summary um, In the present study, we test the infidelity detection hypothesis of oral sex. If cunnilingus functions to detect rival semen, then men at greater recurrent risk of sperm competition will report greater interest in performing cunnilingus on their partner, prediction one, and will perform cunnilingus for a longer duration to better detect rival semen, prediction two. How long do you have to do it, you think, (laughs) to be able to detect rival semen? Yeah, I, I don't know. It's an empirical <laughs> question. Um, so yeah. here's, so the, the key part of this is men at greater recurrent risk of sperm competition. So that's basically saying uh, if, the, if their partners are actually, like the chances that they're fucking other dudes is higher, then these yeah. guys are going to want to eat pussy more. And the way that they operationalize this is by asking the men how attractive they think their partner is or how attractive other people think their partner is. So I'm sorry to spoil this all, this buildup, but the finding is men who find their partners more attractive are more likely to want to go down on them. That's the finding. That's it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, If you have a hotter girlfriend, you're going to be more into going down on them. Uh, yeah. So, you know, and they asked about relationship satisfaction and... They controlled. And yeah, they, they controlled. controlled so, so the really, the only explanation for this. <laughs> so, okay, so the obvious, to me, the obvious explanation is, well, if you're more attracted to somebody, you want to go down on them more, right? And yeah. and so they might mention this as a possible alternative theory, but then in the discussion no. when they're mentioning alternative, oh no, theories. the alternate that's where this <laughs> goes into like pure genius is the alternate explanation. <laughs> okay, you yeah, should yeah, read some ahead. of them. An alternative explanation for the current <laughs> results is that cunnilingus facilitates sperm retention via orgasm, and that men at greater recurrent risk of sperm competition may be particularly likely to perform cunnilingus. Women who receive oral sex are more likely to experience orgasm at a given copulatory event than are women who do not receive oral sex. And women retain more sperm when they experience an orgasm temporarily near their partner's ejaculation. So for that to be true, you have to have fucked her first. 
and then gone down on her. And I am willing to put money on that that's not the usual order of things. No. <laughs> and also, if you do do it before you copulate with them, you're just pushing that rival sperm up in them if you make right. it. Or yes. But then they conclude this alternate explanation with by saying the sperm retention hypothesis, uh, which is the rival hypothesis, but not the infidelity detection hypothesis, depends on cunnilingus resulting in orgasm. Future research, therefore, may be able to disentangle these hypotheses by securing data on whether cunnilingus resulted in orgasm. That's 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 the that's hope. brilliant. <laughs> that's art right there. Like <laughs> Richard Dawkins wouldn't understand. It's way better than Animal Farm. <laughs> <laughs> why? Like, why isn't the alternative hypothesis that like men who are who find their partner more attractive want to go down? Why? Like, how is that not the first? Like, who? Who reviewed this paper that that wasn't like the, just the review? It's this is not a pay to publish journal. Okay, another explanation for the current results is that men perform cunnilingus on their partner to quote unquote sexually satiate her. <laughs> sexually dissatisfied. Why is that? Why is that in quotes? Sexually dissatisfied women are more susceptible to infidelity, and the frequency with which men perform cunnilingus on their partner is positively related to their partner's sexual satisfaction. Therefore, cunnilingus may be a tactic men use to minimize the likelihood that their partner will be sexually unfaithful. Future research might investigate whether sperm competition risk predicts men's interest in and time spent performing cunnilingus after statistically controlling for their partner's sexual satisfaction. By the way, like I love that, like just the codes of this are future research m might investigate whether sperm competition risk, which by that they just mean whether your your girlfriend <laughs> is, hot. is hot or yeah. not. That's hot all. According to, hot according to you, right? Not even according like, to you, yeah. right? But that's how they describe just like attractiveness, right? Not to, not to mention like the finding that if you're in a satisfied relationship, you actually rate your uh, partner as more attractive than <laughs> other people do, right? Like, no, that couldn't be. That couldn't be. <laughs> this explanation, unlike the other one, like makes some sense. Like, it's probably like wrong, but not entirely wrong. You know, like yeah. you know, yeah. If you uh, sexually satisfy your partner, then they're less likely to leave you. And like, you know, right. I, like I would all say all forms of satisfaction, probably if you emotionally yeah. satisfy her, she's less likely to <laughs> right. leave you. Right? Uh, here. Okay. So here's another reason that I'm disappointed in this, in this, if, if their hypothesis is true, then what you should find is that these men who are in relationships with more attractive women or whatever, the partner risk, whatever measure they're using, um, ought to want to engage more in cunnilingus, but not other sexual acts, right? right? So on my hypothesis, you just want to hook up more with your partner because you're attracted to them. So like they, they didn't go, they didn't bother to ask like, how often do you finger? <laughs> like ass play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Do you lick her booty? You know? Like, yeah. Is, um, uh, no, no, they didn't ask any of that, which you would think would be crucial to their hypothesis. <laughs> but I'm sure. You would think. <laughs> But this is, as they note, the first study to test an evolutionary explanation for oral sex in humans. They say, at least, the results support the hypothesis that cunnilingus may function to detect female infidelity uh, because they will be more likely to eat out their partner and also do it for a longer period of time. Yeah. Now, so this doesn't I think explain oral sex that women give to men, although I find that as a much more plausible mechanism to detect cheating. Uh, yes, right, exactly. The, I think the big question, though, that they just never even address is how this would, like, 
actually work. If we're going with the absurd idea that there has to be some evolutionary explanation, just one of these standard like Evo psych explanations for cunnilingus, like there, there needs they need to connect the dots in terms of like why this is beneficial. Yeah. So like to and 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 how it then functions to motivate uh, more adaptive behavior. And there's just none of that. Right. So so does is there an increase in jealousy? Like the, what? Like is the behavior of like w- yeah exactly? What is the behavior? If it's functional at all, it has to have some impact on the behavior of one right. or the other the, uh, the other person. So yeah, they never lay that out. I find it frustrating too this this kind of approach to evolutionary psychology where everything that exists must have a yeah. function. And I feel like it's often sort of thrown back at the critic to say, "Are you saying that human sexuality isn't the product of evolution?" When it's like, "No, I'm not, like you don't have to say that to think that there are aspects, <laughs> there are a ton of aspects of human sexuality that <laughs> right. clearly serve no function that could be the, the you know a side effect of something that adapted, could be a completely novel invention, right? Like obviously it's culturally uh, shaped in right. ways that you you couldn't analyze like this. Yeah, right. right. There are but cultures no, but it's in like, oh, kind of, so you're yeah. a creationist? <laughs> yeah. you, you don't think there's an evolutionary explanation? But. Yeah, no, it's sad, but this is the kind of work that gives evolutionary psychology just just a terrible reputation and and you know like it's just embarrassing like you can't have a a field which is already teetering on the edge of being like a legitimate subject of constant ridicule like to have all these things being published you know yeah yeah it's it's it turns into this happens with a lot of little subdomains of research where you can have just this in group of people who are all working on like in a they have a really similar approach and they just sort of like big up each other and accept each other's papers. And, and yeah. you know, before you know it, it's sort of insulated from the rest of the sane, well, to some degree or other, sane <laughs> world. I just want to yeah. mention, by the this way. This is a lot of yeah. ac- ac- academia. Yeah, like, it's, it's not, not just evolutionary just... psychology at all. Yeah. I mean, moral development, when I started studying moral judgment in grad school, a ton of what was being done was in one little corner of the world like this is like neo Kohlbergian moral development people they were using the same methods doing the same kinds of studies there's yeah. just it, it gets a little incestuous and ideas sort of can get bad that way i just wanted to read though this i spent i, I don't know why i i was just intrigued by some i was like i want to know what these references that they're using to build this hypothesis are so there is uh the sentence you read where you said uh, this hypothesis was inspired by research, I think you read it, on non-humans documenting the increased frequency of male genital licking and sniffing during female asterisks, as well as one study in humans documenting that <laughs> men rate vaginal fluid as more pleasant smelling when the woman is at peak fertility. So they cite a paper from 1975, Doty Ford, Preddy, and Huggins, and yeah. I was like, what is this paper? So I, I, <laughs> Yeah, how did they do that? I went and looked it up. This was published in Science, like just, top yeah. journal, just Science. Yeah. And um, it was sort of interesting, but here's what they did. They actually had women wear tampons throughout the month and had m- both men and women sniff those tampons. They had like 400 <laughs> men and like 400 women, if I'm recalling correctly, sniff the tampons and they broke up like the, the women's cycle into like I don't know, 14 chunks or something like that. And here's what they found. <laughs> they rated the, if the scale, the scale was like negative five to positive five with positive five being 
pleasant, negative five being unpleasant. Not it, no period during the month did it ever even get to the pleasant. It never got right. above the negative numbers. And so right. them citing this as saying, one study in humans documenting that men rate vaginal fluid is more pleasant smelling when the women is at peak fertility. I thought you're not supposed to have a tampon in if you Well, this was in 1975. You know? So there was just, yeah. yeah. You, you know, could do whatever you they wanted. They were just like, if, like <laughs> half of them got toxic shocks into them. You, know, like. <laughs> you could just put a cup, <laughs> toxic shock, exactly. Uh, you could, but that was when you could just put people in jail like, for, for two weeks. And, <laughs> That's right. Like, <laughs> show some videos and like sexually humiliate them for two weeks. And it was fine. Uh, those were the days. This, this in science. I, like, but it is really funny and it, at no point is intentionally funny like like it's it's played so straight yeah no no that, yeah absolutely. <laughs> uh, there's no recognition that like look we're talking about sex I and mean, even making some kind of joke or s- just some kind of recognition that this is going to sound weird but it's just <laughs> uh, why why don't like peter bogosian and helen pluckrose and james Lindsay? why don't they do fake articles on this you know and yeah uh, like this could be a parody like i mean they would have had to fake the data, but... That wouldn't fit their agenda. No. <laughs> uh, all right. <sighs> all right. Uh, when we come back, we will talk about apologies, the philosophy, and the psychology. This episode of Very Bad Wizards is brought to you once again by BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com. Look, you deserve to be happy, and if you've been thinking about making a change in your life for the better, why don't you try out BetterHelp? BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service, and it's 100% online. Last I checked, there's almost 2 million people who have gotten help from them. And if you choose to do that, all you have to do is go to BetterHelp, fill out a brief questionnaire telling them what your issues are, and you'll be put in touch within 24 hours with a professional, licensed, and vetted therapist who you can trust. BetterHelp.com is available across all 50 states, really across the world. They have 21,000 therapists, each with their own specialty, just available uh, to help you with whatever it is that you need. But if you don't like who you were assigned, you can feel free to switch and they'll do that for you right away. So if you've been struggling with mental health issues, or if you just want to be happier, improve your life in some way, why don't you give betterhelp.com a try and go to betterhelp.com slash bbw where you'll get 10% off of your first month. That's b-e-t-t-e-r-h-e-l-p.com slash v-b-w so that they know that you came from us and they can continue to support us. Our thanks to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Very Bad Wizards. Sparkling ring for every finger I'll put away and hide from view.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time that we always like to take a moment and thank all of our listeners who get in touch with us, who contact us, who write to criticize us or sometimes to thank us. Um, we really appreciate everybody who gets in touch with us and the, the whole community that's been built around this podcast, which is great. If you would like to contact us, you can reach us uh, at verybadwizards at gmail.com. We read all of our emails to this day. We still do that. Um, we, don't, we can't respond to anywhere near as many as we would like to, but we really appreciate getting them. Um, you can uh, follow us on Twitter at peas at Tamler at Very Bad Wizards. You can also follow us actively on Instagram. I was very happy to see some people <laughs> on Instagram. <laughs> I got, I even got DM'd by people being like, really? "Oh, so I'm a passive." Uh, so I'm <laughs> <laughs> that's all. That was great. I was so happy to see that. I thought that was really uh, yeah. Follow us on Instagram. Like us on Facebook. By the way, don't ever Facebook message us because. Like I, oh, that's yeah. the one thing I don't read. Like I see notifications that I get them, but then I just like it's I can't go through that long process of trying to figure out how. I to, haven't logged on to Facebook in like yeah two years. <laughs> yeah, I mean I I'm very rarely on Facebook. Uh, also, so that's the one way not to get in touch with us. Right. Um, you can join the thriving subreddit community over seven thousand strong now. That's crazy. Uh, and uh, always some fun stuff up there. Uh, that's where you'll see, probably, if you really want to see us getting taken to task, that, yeah. would be, uh, that would be one place to do it. And you can see when we, like, actually snap and, like, have to reply defensively. To <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and have we ever apologized? I don't know if we were apologized. I did, you know, because... As, as I as I say in the next segment, apologies come easy to me. That's Sincere true. apologies, you fuckface. <laughs> yeah. Sincere apologies. And you can rate us on Apple Podcasts. That's a great way to allow other people to discover our podcast. Also, subscribe to us on Spotify and tell your friends um, if you think that they would enjoy our podcast. Um, so thank you. Everybody, it's always fun keeping tabs on the conversation going on, on around our humble podcast. That's right. And if you uh, are generous of heart and want to support us in more tangible ways, we really, really appreciate that as well. Um, you can go to our Very Bad Wizards homepage and click on the support tab and you'll see the ways that you can support us there. One of the things you can do is join our Patreon, you can be one of our patrons, which we very, very much appreciate. Uh, so for a dollar and up, you get ad-free episodes and you get uh, all the volumes of my beats. At $2 and up, you get bonus segments. What do we have coming up? We have we uh, Sopranos coming up. We yeah. have Ghosts. I'm, I'm going to be... Uh, <laughs> it's gonna I'm going to be, gonna be convincing one. Dave that there are ghosts. <laughs> And at $5 and up, you get all of the things I just mentioned, but you get uh, to select an episode topic and vote on it. And that we're going to 
come up soon. We're going to be recording on. Uh, yeah, structure of scientific rev- re- uh, revolutions. It's actually longer than I remember it. <laughs> having just pulled it out. So just get ready because we're recording on it next week. All right. Well, anyway, you can support us there. You can support us uh, via one-time donation on PayPal, which we also really appreciate. Um, you can, uh, oh, and part of the $5 and up, I forgot to mention, you get our five-part uh, Brothers Karamazov uh, series. It's included in the $5 and up tier, but if you want to get that on your own, you can go to Himalaya.com and you can either sign up for an account there and subscribe or you can get it a la carte. Um, but yeah, we're very proud of that. You can also click on uh, to buy merch. We have cool t-shirts that we love. We have cool mugs that we love. And I wanted to, at this point, uh, did you see the email of the poor guy who ordered a mug? I wanted to give him a shout out. He ended up paying, I don't even want to say how much he paid in shipping to buy his friend a mug in Europe. But let's just say it was like an order of magnitude. (laughs) More, expensive more than, than the, the mug, mug cost. Yeah. So, Peter Mollenberg, I apologize. Email me again, and I'll, I don't know. I'll give you all of the things I have: the beats, the bonus episodes. I don't know what I could possibly do. You know, I got the mug finally. This oh, week. you did? Yeah. Yeah. It's you like it? What I do. Think? All right. Last thing I'm going to say before uh, signing off is: by the end of the summer, our goal is to have a ten dollar and up uh, patronage with extra goodies. So we're yeah. going to be working on that. If you have any ideas for what you would want in that tier, yeah. um, within reason, let us know. Nothing that might be like an infidelity detection or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> that's how, I, th- I think I replied to someone's tweet, that's how I know when Tamler's been on another podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah, so thank you to everybody for your support. We really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm so very, 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 fuck you! I'm, I'm very, very, I'm so very, 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 All right, well, let's get to um, our topic for today, which is apologies. This is something that we've been, like a topic that we've been wanting to talk about for a while. And I think we're, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's, it has a really deep psychology. There are very interesting ethical dimensions to it. It touches popular culture in all sorts of ways, interesting ways. But, it's, but it is hard to find a lot of literature that is focused on it. So I don't know, maybe that's why we haven't talked about it yet, but we found some good stuff, right? Yeah, I think there's like sort of an increase in interest in in psychology, maybe in philosophy as well. I was more surprised. I knew that there was a little bit of work in psychology on apologies. I was more surprised at how little there appears to be in philosophy, Um, which it strikes me is actually one of the, areas of philosophy where you act like where it could actually matter right <laughs> like it's as as a topic for applied ethics there are a few things that would ha- actually i think have an, an impact in people's day-to-day lives as clearly as sort of talking about what a good apology is and what isn't you know this is something you find that's common in philosophy or analytic philosophy these days i remember one of my uh colleagues justin coates saying to me there's so much literature on promises, but how often do you make promises to people? 
you know, like, but there's so much philosophical, philosophical literature on it, even though it's something that we rarely do and, and we understand pretty well when we do do it. But then uh, something like being a good friend, there's yeah. so little about that, which is like a huge deal, like in our day to day lives, something that we face, something that we value, something that we're uh, aspiring towards. And I think apologies is another example of that. There is some stuff on it, um, but a lot of it is generated by this one philosopher, Nick Smith, yeah. who wrote a book called I Was Wrong. And at least in the intro to that book, he claims it's the first real treatise on apologies and philosophy since like 1180. Yeah, Maimonides. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, good. I never know how to pronounce that. Maimonides, is that how you say it? Maimonides, okay. yeah. Um, there, there are other things that I think, um, so I think one now that public apologies are so common, what with social media, uh, there's almost a subgenre of YouTube video, of, which is like the YouTube apology. We had the Me Too movement where a ton of people had to, to issue apologies. I, I yeah. think that it's it's more common to see them and scrutinize them. Everything from like corporate apologies, to just, you know, apologies on Twitter that people offer up. We're faced with a lot, like way more apologies than we would be if we were just living in, a, you know. <laughs> Bean dad apology. Bean dad that apologies. One? And then the, 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 the woman who said, here's why I don't accept Bean dad's apology. <laughs> a thread. And it was just like, just some random person, like not accepting the apology of some right. random person. So yes, we're in a, a stage where apologies, the, the meaning has been diluted a little bit. Yeah. There's also for me, like an academic interest, it hits a kind of a sweet spot for, it's just like moral issues about moral responsibility. Um, because as, as uh, is pointed out in the article that you shared with me on apologies in Hamlet, like it, apologies often are sort of on this, like they're in this sort of neat little nexus of claiming responsibility for a wrong that you did, but asking for it to be not taken as an offense anymore. Like a request for forgiveness can, can be paired sort of at odds with, with the admission of guilt, like the confession, at least according to yeah, my Well, yeah. so that's interesting because so there is a philosopher that tried to actually on that basis say that there is a paradox of apologies, which is that you're on the one hand accepting blame, but on the other hand, yeah, a asking for forgiveness. I like I think though that like the forgiveness part is not a necessary aspect of exactly, apologies. Yeah. Like it would be nice to be forgiven, but a lot of the time when you're apologizing, especially if it's for. A, you know, a, a serious wrong, you don't expect necessarily to be forgiven, but you want to apologize anyway. Yeah. And in fact, like I would argue that, that the better apologies are ones that don't request yeah. forgiveness. That um, don't have like this instrumental goal yeah. um, on the yeah. part of the apologizer. Right. Because that's, that's part of, and we'll talk more about this, but that's part of, I think, understanding what you've done to the person that you're apologizing to, which is like, you don't expect them to be able to forgive you. Like that, you, you understand that what you did was damaging in a way that, that they might not be able to get over just because you said, right. <laughs> sorry, wait, are you not over it? I said, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right. And when you do that, that's not, that, that's not a good apology. So we yeah. looked at like two kinds of literature, um, some of the philosophy on it, and there's some good philosophy on it. Yeah. Um, in particular, uh, one paper by Nick Smith um, and another by the Andrew Escobedo called Unsincere Apologies Saying Sorry in Hamlet. 
and these just talk about, you know, what are the characteristics, the features of an apology. It doesn't get into, in fact, both authors reject the idea that the goal here is to say when something is an apology and when isn't it, like some sort of necessary conditions um, or sufficient conditions. They're not trying to do that. They're just talking about, like, features of apologies, um, dimensions of it, and what makes a good one, and so forth. And and then uh, some psych research on the, which I think is interesting, why apologizing is so hard or what are the barriers or obstacles to apology? Yeah. Um, which I think is another interesting question that the philosophical literature doesn't deal with that much. Right, right. The, the, the role of the person who was transgressed upon, like, is, it's interesting. That, that one paper by Corinna Schumann, it's a review paper, we'll put a link to it. Um, that deals with that. Like I hadn't seen that really in in even in the apology literature on in psychology. Um, I was, was going to say, yeah. So I actually think that there's a bit of a paradox in some apologies, but we can get to to that. Um, but I really did like the Nick Smith article. So he had. So why don't we talk about that? What it, he calls a categorical apology. I don't know why he calls it that. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> you would think that it had some kind of connection to like. Kant, and I guess it does in a in a distant sense, but yeah, let's talk about uh, some of the features of it. Corroborated factual record is the first one, which is, uh, so a categorical apology, he says, will corroborate a detailed factual record of the event salient to the injury, reaching agreement among the victim, offender, and sometimes the community regarding what uh, transpired. He says such a record will often include honest accounts of the mental states of the apologizer at the time of the offense when such information would prove relevant. So I think this is a really important one. This is what I think maybe a lot of apologizers don't emphasize enough is just saying exactly what happened and what your role in it was. Yeah, it, it, that's, it's a huge part of what people get wrong, and it matters a great deal because uh, the minute you, your account of what happened is different than wh- whoever the victim is, the apology is just, on those grounds, yeah. I think, falls flat. Um, right. And there is, right. there is some research on um, from Roy Baumeister, actually, from the late 90s it's one of the the i think the more interesting papers i didn't share with you but it it was basically showing that like people's memory of transgressions is very different like from victim to perpetrator which is totally right so like i you know y- you construe the event differently you remember it differently and to get on the same page about what you're apologizing about yeah. especially cuz it matters like the severity of the the offense matters right like if i minimize it and I'm like, well, right. remember that time I kind of dissed you? And you're like, no, you fucking insulted me in front of everybody. Like, um. And also, like, I think if you are wronged, there is a nagging suspicion that you have that maybe, you know, like you're overreacting or maybe, you know, like you misinterpreted something or maybe it's you that's uh, the one that's somehow, like, misjudged the situation. And the reason this is so important is because it, it dispels those uh, natural doubts that you might feel when when you feel wronged. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, I think one of the worst kinds of apologies is one where you're sort of implying that the person is overreacting. And I think that happens a lot where where you're, you're saying, like, look, I'm sorry. And there's a hint of, 
I'm sorry that you reacted so strongly to what you probably shouldn't have reacted that strongly to. Like, now I don't know if the corroborated factual record can sort of settle whether you reacted appropriately, but I think. But it's necessary. That's the goal. So, yeah, it's necessary. It's necessary yeah. because one thing that I think does happen is, well, I, I think you're kind of crazy for having taken offense, because I actually think what I did was different than what you think I did. That's like right. one way where it can go wrong. Yeah. So, like, here's a great example of this. So, an, an apology that we've talked about quite a bit is Dan Harmon's yeah. apology that he made on his podcast to Megan Gans, um, who was a writer on Community when he was the showrunner there. And we can talk about that apology in more detail. But the reason why it was so effective, and, and Megan Gans wrote that it was effective, is she said, what I didn't expect was the relief I'd feel just hearing him say these things actually happened. I didn't dream it. I'm not crazy. Ironic that the only person who could give me that comfort is the one person I'd never ask. Right. Right? Like, so, like, that perfectly captures why this is so important is because you could see that, so this was a writer that had been sexually harassed by Dan Harmon in all sorts of different ways, not like an obvious, he tried to like sexually assault her or anything like that. And I think like, you know, and this was one of the good things about Me Too is it sort of made people realize that, no, there is an actual problem here, but to get it from the person yeah. is like, the, is exactly what you need if you are the offended party. You need to know that that's, uh, that these things happen and that you're not a little, you're not crazy because sometimes we do get a little crazy and, yeah. <laughs> um, and <laughs> right. feel insulted when we weren't insulted or wronged or harmed or something like that. Right. Um, there's a lot I think that's really good about this Dan Harmon apology, um, that I think can, can, can serve as sort of a template to talk about these good apologies. But yeah, I, before launching too much into something else, we should go down the list a little bit more, but uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I have the next one I have is acceptance of blame or responsibility. The offender accepts causal moral responsibility and blame for the harm at issue. So, you know, you, you don't try to make excuses for what happened. Well, it wasn't really me or, you know, if it was me, like it was an accident or something like that, you're not only accepting causal moral responsibility, but also I think just blame. Like this is, it was your fault that, that you did it. And this um, is the part where I think people fuck this up a lot in a way that I kind of find hilarious because it's such an obvious error to make, yeah, which is right. to kind of get defensive and like sneak in there that it really wasn't your fault. Which yeah. just the whole point the whole point is is in many ways accepting responsibility for what you did. And so to 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 imply that it was either excusable or justified or that you're not in fact blameworthy in the moral sense or in the causal sense is yeah. just skirting out of it, which I always think surely they knew when they were doing that that they're undermining their own apologies. Like they can't some people just can't they can't let it go. They just can't like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I didn't know it was you. How could I know it was you? <laughs> How could you expect me to guess? Stupid jerk. I mean, what the fuck are you doing robbing your own house, you asshole? You stupid, stiff, pompous English. Ah! I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So here's, an, yeah. here's a great example. Kevin Spacey's apology. Oh, man. 
which is uh, just a master class in just <laughs> like the <laughs> how not to apologize. Uh, but so here's the first sentence. So he, wait, we should say he was accused for sexually molesting uh, Anthony Rapp when, when uh, Rapp was 14 years old. Yeah, I owe Rapp the sincerest apology for what would have been deeply inappropriate drunken behavior, and I am sorry for the feelings he describes having carried with him all these years. <laughs> It's like, it's so funny. Like, I just, even the, I'm sorry for the feelings he describes having carried with him all these years. Just That just sounds like, I mean, he's making this up, kind of. Yeah. Or he, and, and, and like, I... Uh... Like, I guess that there is just legal liability. It sounds like what what sometimes happens is that lawyers say, no, no, you can't. You shouldn't say this because you're admitting that it happened or whatever. Right. But then just don't apologize, I feel like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the, a, a more subtle one is in that paper, um, the Sincere Apologies paper, the Tyson apology <laughs> yeah. to Evander Holyfield after he bit off a chunk of his ear during one of their fights. Yeah. Um, so here was his public apology. Evander, I am sorry. You are a champion and I respect that. I am only saddened that this fight did not go further so that the boxing fans of the world might see for themselves who would come out on top. When you butted in that first round, accidentally or not, I snapped in reaction and the rest is history. <laughs> So, I mean, he's just not accepting blame yeah. in that statement, right? Like, he's saying he snapped, which makes it sound completely involuntary. He's saying it's kind of your fault because you had it butted me. And then, he, and then even when he says he's sorry, he says he's sorry that the fight, you know, like, didn't go further so that the fans could see that I would have kicked your ass, essentially. Right. Like anytime there's sort of a, like a qualifying statement after the I'm sorry, it's like raises red flags. But yeah, this is clearly a non-apology. Like it, it should, other than that the words I am sorry are technically in there, <laughs> it's just not an apology at all. <laughs> right, right. I mean, that was one of the things about Louis C.K.'s, which I think like we can go over, but does meet some of the criteria or a lot of the criteria listed here he didn't say i am sorry yeah. uh, in it in like in in that very explicit way um so clearly that matters in a lot of cases but this is one where i am sorry is the only aspect of it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um all right what's the next one uh, i have the list from the clear thinking uh, article that you sent me um, oh, okay. So they're going to be titled something differently and in more plain speak. But the third one here is be the right person. If an apology yeah. is about accepting responsibility, it follows that the apology has to come from a person who can credibly take responsibility. This is, this is tricky. And I think this is one of the hardest aspects of public apologies. And I think it, it does not come across as sincere, almost in most cases to me, which is when a corporation offers an apology for the actions of a corporation. I find it really mm. hard to believe the, in the sincerity of any of their apologies. Hello, I'm Tony Hayward, president and CEO of BP. Our accidental drilling spill again in the Gulf is a tragedy that should have never happened. And to all those affected, I want to say, we are deeply sorry. We're sorry. We're sorry. Sorry. There's a great South Park where the CEO of BP uh, apologizes for the oil spill in a series of commercials, which was based on something that was real. Like he did these like commercials that were public apologies for 
uh, for BP and the oil spill. It's like, what, why, like, this is completely meaningless to us. Yeah. I guess it's partly because we have no way of verifying their sincerity and we have every reason to think that it is insincere and, and written by their PR people and... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, there's a nice distinction in this article uh, on the effectiveness of public apologies for sexual misconduct, which is a, a recent one by Corinna Schumann and Anna Dragada. And um, it's it's really in the context of the Me Too apologies, but she she draws a distinction, I guess cites somebody else, somebody who draws a distinction that there is there's there are one to one apologies, uh, like just straight up interpersonal, like Tandler apologizing to me for being an ass. And there's many to many apologies, like intergroup and corporate apologies, or like you know, you could, to governments might uh, right. apologize. The Turkey one, to Armenia. Yeah, and then sorry about the, the one, genocide. <laughs> then there's the one to many apology, which is also tricky, which is the sexual misconduct, having to apologize essentially to all people, and the many to many ones because there's I don't you know, like you said, there are many reasons why to to be cynical about corporate. Uh, responsibility but even just group apologies are tricky because there's no Mm. agent there's no clear agent taking responsibility um right yeah Yeah, i I think actually this feature is also geared towards something more personal like if you know your your child harms uh another child like do you have the standing to apologize for your child or your brother or like uh, we get listeners emailing us all the time offended by Dave's anti-Semitism. <laughs> like, do I have the standing to apologize to them on his behalf? No, I think he has to do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm a big uh, boy. Those, get, uh, <laughs> those just get shuffled direct. I have a Gmail filter. Uh, yeah. Anti-Semitism uh, complaints. <laughs> In preparation for this, I was watching like these YouTube videos where they were just listing bad apologies. Mm-hmm. And... Um, I don't know how good or bad this one was, but there was a, a tweet that Burger King UK sent out that the, the tweet was women belong in the kitchen, period. That was, the, oh, yeah. The, yeah, I just remember. And then they followed it up with a second tweet where it was like, just the whole, you find out, <laughs> it's revealed that this was a comment about uh, the ratio of, of women to men in the in the chef, you know, in kitchens, how many chefs there are is right. social injustice and they, they're trying to address it, which I don't know how Burger King can address that. And it's clear that the schmuck who wrote it is probably a social, I mean, a, a social media intern, but like the PR people are the ones apologizing. So it's just clearly not. You see, I think that one, though, there was a theory that this was all just completely planned. Well, there's the cynicism. This is like, it's hard to to take any actions by a corporation seriously. There's there's no way that some, like, you know, social media intern decided, like, oh, I'm just going to say on Burger King's Twitter, official Twitter account, women uh, belong in the kitchen. Like, they knew that this would be just so much free press. I I think... Maybe that's the case, but if so, they definitely didn't clear it through PR because I can imagine in corporations the PR people being so upset that this happened. Right. So They're the ones that need to be apologized yeah. to if anybody does. Yeah, the next one is identification of each harm. Identifying each harm, taking care not to conflate several harms into one general harm or to apologize only for a lesser offense or the wrong wrong. 
in quotes. I don't know what he means by that. But I think that the general idea here is, and this is again something that Dan Harmon's apology did so well, is it just goes through sort of bit by bit saying the different ways that his actions were harmful. And that shows, I think it shows uh, in a sense that you're not like trying to sugarcoat this at all. You are aware of what you did and you're aware of what you're apologizing for. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think here's one thought I was having as I was reading just this literature, which is I don't think there it's it's a paradox in the way um, that we were talking about previously between forgiveness and apologizing. But I, there is an inherent tension. I think I wanted to get your thoughts on on this in that when you're apologizing for something, you are admitting to having done something wrong. So at that point, you know that it was wrong because you're apologizing. You, you presumably know at this point. But imagine yeah. that I just slapped you and then right afterwards I'm like, I'm really sorry. I know I shouldn't have slapped you. Like one immediate question would be like, why didn't this great moral thinking of yours prevent you from slapping me in the first place? Like what has, what has changed in your mental state and what can explain why you would knowingly do something bad? What, one of the things that Dan Harmon gets really right is that he yeah. explains how it's not that he was like, you know, this was a two-year period where he was basically right. being an ass to this woman. It's not like, had you asked Dan Harmon then, it's not that he didn't realize that he was intentionally acting. Like, it wasn't like he lost control that day. It wasn't that he didn't understand what harassment was. So he goes by and in a very detailed way explains what his mental state at the time was yeah. and what his mistakes were and how he realized them. It's, he's not saying who would have known that this was wrong two years ago or whatever. He's actually saying, yeah. I clearly knew something was wrong, but I didn't really get a deep sense of how wrong it was until like this reflection. Like, like he went in depth to try to understand exactly what he, he did to the, to the victim. And he's so well focused on the victim, like the person that he harmed. And it's, it's not, it's kind of about him, but it's explaining his understanding over time of how he affected that person. Yeah, so there's something where he says, like, I, I wouldn't have been able to do this if I had fundamentally respected women. Yeah. But I, you know, I didn't. You know, like, I had the sort of outward appearance of somebody who did, but there's no way that I could have done this for two years. Again, I think that's, like, make it, it's, like, part of this is just you. the victim isn't, like, being gaslighted here it's yeah. the opposite it's like no 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 like not only did i do it not only but i'm responsible for it and i'm actually like i was a bad person when i did it like th these are really bad things you know whatever the paradox might be is that like why are you apologizing now how could you do it then yeah he's saying well i right like you said i've changed i i've changed as a person and then even that he's like but it's only like your like i probably would have just let it go if it weren't for your tweet that like made me have to reckon with this yeah like and I, he, he also yeah. really goes into into detail about the layers of justification and minimizing that he was engaging he, in right 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 yeah. because like it actually is super rare and i think very difficult to to actually not only say but believe that you were a bad person like i think most of us have this sense that like well but you know deep down i'm a good guy right right and, and he's going into, he's explaining how he probably considered himself a good guy at the time. And here's yeah. how I did it. I kept minimizing this. I kept like justifying it. I thought I didn't do it, you know, all that self-deception 
at least how he sees it now. He's explaining how it could happen. Yeah. This is a real reckoning with, but in, that in every way validates like the feelings of the person who are, who's wronged. And I think this is exactly what you're looking for if uh, in an apology is this sort of re- this recognition that, you know, the person acted in this way and a plausible story about how the person uh, could have acted that way that's consistent with the fact that the person is apologizing now. Yeah, so Dan Harmon sort of, gives a a moral journey he like lays out a moral journey that he went on and and i do you know megan gantz's relief that she couldn't predict like i so get it when when you just so much of the time you just want i find this interpersonally i just want someone to show that they understand like how i feel about it like i just want like yeah there's just an epistemological kind of way in which i'm like i just want you to to convey to me that you get why I'm feeling this way. And it does feel like a relief when somebody acknowledges that. By the way, and, ha- and it's the most infuriating thing. And like, this will happen like in, you know, like with me and Jen, me and my wife in arguments is when it seems like you're talking about different, like, <laughs> like you have a completely different understanding of what's just occurred. And it's better if the yeah. person just says, yes, I did that, but I'm uh, like I'm not sorry. Like that's way better than yeah. if they have a def- a different understanding of what just occurred. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's so weird that that, that desire to be understood so deeply. My and dog- to just know that you're not insane. Like that's yeah. the Megan Gantz thing. To exactly. know that you're not crazy. You know, because exactly. that you're not. I I find that that being accused of being oversensitive is something I'm really <laughs> sensitive to <laughs> because I think I am. Like, I, I actually think I am. But it makes me actually feel so good when somebody will tell, like, will tell me, no, no, you're not being overseas. Like, I can see, you know, I can see why you feel that way. I'm like, oh, good. Like, it's validating. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't sincerely tell you that you're not being oversensitive. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. If, uh, if there's some we, other way. We should, we should, I feel like uh, we both are people for whom apologies are not difficult. I don't know how 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 you well, feel about it. Like I, I, I find that when we've argued, for instance, um, you're actually in a really good way quite quick to say sorry, which completely disarms me, and yeah. and allows me to find it. It it takes the defensiveness off and allows right. me to find ways in which I have obviously like been an ass to you. Right. Like, right. It's which like allowing usually, that moral fight. Well, you're which dwarfs whatever I might have done. <laughs> or, I just wear my you, sensitivity you, on my sleeve. You're the or you, <laughs> no, no, no. Like uh, we've had, like we don't do this as much anymore, but back yeah. when we used to fight, like yeah. there would be these long things where we were both pretty uh, upset and also just like disagreed about, but then like, yeah, those apologies went a long way. Yeah. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say, so I think probably I'm, uh, it's easier for me than most to say sorry. I have a lot of practice at it, but <laughs> but it's still hard. And I think yeah. that's an interesting question as to why it's so hard to to apologize, given that it has these, you know, whether intended or not, and hopefully not too intended, these strong benefits, instrumental benefits. You would think that we would be better at it. And this is some of the stuff, you know, apology and honor has yeah. have a lot of connections. 
William Ian Miller really thought that apologies had to be in some way humiliating. Like you had to be actually humiliated, which I think is a little too strong. But something because otherwise people will just think that it's It's you're just doing it. Yeah, it's cheap. You're just doing it for so that you can move on. I yeah, I find that um, at some point in my life. I don't know how or why I decided that it's always just better to apologize because even when I think I didn't do anything wrong, like if somebody tells me that what I did actually hurt them, it it seemed like no skin off my back to say, well, wow, I really didn't mean to hurt you. Like I didn't know that I was hurting you. Um, My sister. Sorry, you were offended. Yeah, sorry, you were offended. My sister just would never, she had a lot of trouble saying sorry. I think my dad apologized to me for the first time. He's like 86, you know, like he apologized to me for the first time, maybe 10 years ago. Like he just would not, (laughs) it would not, he just couldn't. So I think apologies by themselves are costly to people for like, they're psychologically difficult. That's right. But which is interesting. Why? You know, like, and the way you were describing, I don't think this is how you are, but the way you were describing the apologies does make it seem like, Oh, well, if Dave Fazaro says, sorry, what what does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean to me? But, uh, but like, if your dad says sorry, that's yeah. that's a freaking meaningful, yeah, uh, right. apology. Like, Although you know I, that he's he's yeah. sorry. Although I do think, I do think even his sorries were very reluctant. <laughs> like, I do think that if, if my, you know, showing that you've done the work to understand how you've hurt somebody else might might be the cost associated with it. But you know, I don't know if you saw. I shared an article on apologies as sort of costly signals. There's an interesting set of, of studies done in Japan. One experiment, for instance, um, in an ultimatum game where I was given 20 bucks and I have to split it with you and I give you just a low ball, like bullshit, yeah. like I give you $1. If So they did this and they had participants who received the low ball offers. Um, they were told that either the person who gave them the low ball offer had been able to choose from like a pre- like a predetermined list of apologies and they were just able to like pick like apology number two they just had to write it in their own handwriting um so half of the people got that the other half were told that the participant had to pay us an amount of money in order to even be able to apologize to to you and as as you'd expect but it was exact same apology in both cases um As you'd expect, the people who were told that the person incurred a cost to apologize found that apology to be more sincere and they were more likely to accept it. That seems, it seems right. I mean, it's like, I don't know. Some people think that what you really want, the goal of getting someone to apologize is to make them hurt in some measure as like a, in a retributive way. I just don't, I don't see it that way. I I know that it signals something, but I don't think... I don't think we just want somebody to, to like... Because it can be a relief to apologize to somebody. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I, I think that the struggle for me to apologize is in cases where I'm not... I don't know if that I'm wrong. And I'm also kind of pissed, mm-hmm. you know? But I might be, but I'm not sure. That's maybe the hardest part. When I'm actually wrong and it's been nagging me and then I apologize to somebody, it can be like this, yeah. you know, whether they accept it or not, now at least I've... I Like, I feel like I am 
you know, no longer deluding myself that I, what I did was okay. And this person knows that. This person knows that I am sorry for what I did, whether they forgive me or not, or whether they, like, it's a relief. It's good. It's not some feeling of, like, humiliation. Yeah, um, it, right, right. Yeah, it's a relief. I, and Harmon says in this article that I read about how, or maybe it was in the apology itself, how it was eating at his stomach, just, like, right. holding on to the, the knowledge that he had done something bad to somebody let's go quickly through the list and then we can start looking at some other apologies identification of the moral principles underlying each harm the offender will identify the moral principles underlying the harms with an appropriate degree of specificity thus making explicit explicit the values at stake in the interaction I i found this one and maybe maybe it's saying something that i'm i'm not quite getting like i I get that you want to, to tell somebody that you know why what you did was wrong was wrong, but uh, I don't know that I would call that identifying the moral principles. Like, I, I'm, I know it, right, I right, might right. say to you, like, Tam, I didn't mean to disrespect you. Is that identifying a moral principle? I think, like, if you, like, reaffirming the moral norms or the, you know, like, the values, I think is a better word here. Principles make it sound like, you know, I violated the categorical imperative. <laughs> I thought, like, what if everybody did this? <laughs> yeah. And then I realized it was wrong. <laughs> so, like, I think it's more like you're just identifying wh- why it was wrong. Uh, what are the, you know, moral norms against it that you accept? This is a lot of, this has some um, associations with restorative justice. And one of the benefits of, of it is this kind of, communal reaffirmation of certain moral norms or values, right? And clarification also of those norms. One of the good things about an offense is that it gives you an opportunity to, like, you know, discuss these values. Like the the Dan Harmon, Megan Gantz thing, it was an opportunity to say, like, here's why this is wrong, you know, even though it's not something that's that's obviously wrong like sexual assault is, it's still like you're, so you're actually getting at the nitty gritty of like what is appropriate and what is inappropriate. And that's a real benefit of having uh, conflicts over about wrongdoing is that you are now able to do this. It provides the opportunity to do this. Like express a shared value. Express a shared and clarify them too, because maybe there's debate as to whether this is a value or not. You know, and so now you're going to have that debate, whereas you might not have otherwise. So we haven't really talked about apologies in this way yet. I think there's something to it, though, that the evolutionary psychologist probably would view apologies as a kind of appeasement behavior and maybe think that what you're doing is showing that you won't do the same thing again. And so, like, all of these might serve as proxies for me believing that you're not going to do it again. Um, Right. Because I do, yeah. So I, I think that one, the the value in knowing that somebody, it's sort of like what what Smith, I think, is saying here is kind of like, tell me that you've internalized the norms and the understanding of the specific wrong that you did. Because, And I think that is valuable because now I'll just trust you a bit more in the future, right? I won't think you're going to make the same mistake. But I don't think this is your th- new thing where you just try to turn any everything into some sort of consequentialist like benefit. No, no, you're like, not, but I'm not saying right. that. I'm saying it might serve this function. It could be completely psychologically backward looking. But I do think that that all things being equal, like the person who has shown these things is a better it's like a better chance that they're gonna not do it in the future. 
No, that's right. I, I would talk about it more in terms of a communal thing, though, of like a, like a community has to figure out how to, you know, know when somebody can be reintegrated into the group. And one of the things that you would want to know there is, you know, is this kind of thing likely to happen again? And the way to know that is to know that this person understands the norms and is now at least publicly committing to um, to observing them. Yeah. In the future, implicitly. And to totally. And I think actually that those levels of analysis may not conflict. And in fact, the re like the reason that it's good to do that is like it is good to reintegrate people into the community that are trustworthy. Yeah. And that also could be a selective, pre you know, like it's it's but yeah, like absolutely. But I, like from a psychological perspective, like a phenomenological perspective, I think it is important for these consequentialist reasons. But like... It's, it's just like, I want to know, like, it's, it's especially in a close relationship, I want to know that we're on the same page about these th things, you know? Like, I want to know that this, is, that this is not some deep value conflict between us. Yeah. And, and so that's really important to know that this relationship, you know, or else you're going to learn that's, that's a problem. And it's not just a problem because this kind of thing is likely to happen in the future. It's a problem that you have such a big value disagreement. Right. I could actually in the context of interpersonal relationships, even romantic relationships, you can sort of tell, like, I don't know if you remember when you dated um, this far back, but you could sort of tell, like, conflict is one of the easiest ways to show, to discover that you have very different values from someone else. If someone yeah. just really just brushes it off and is like, eh, whatever, like, I don't know why well, you're upset by this. I did that, but, like, <laughs> why are you, why are you being oh, okay. such a bitch like, about it? <laughs> exactly. I lost a lot of girlfriends that way. <laughs> uh, yeah, right. Okay, so that was the moral principles. Yeah. Uh, see the person as a moral equal is the next one I have. Yeah. Um, I guess it's, a yeah, like to show that you don't think that you have like more moral value than they do yeah. or something. I feel uh, like some of that is just entailed in all of the other ones. You know? Yeah, I but agree. It's, it's, it's fine to specify, but, but I feel like yeah. you couldn't do it. Yeah. So here's an interesting is the performance or communicative aspect of it. Um, and I think this is, you know, this relates to what we were talking about with the corporate apologies of like how they're being done. But certainly like, you know, it matters that how you apologize, not just the words that you say, but like, are you doing it face to face personally? Are you doing it publicly? Do you have like the right intentions for doing it? Is it not purely for instrumental benefits um do you have the do you feel genuine regret and are you communicating genuine genuine regret this is a really important part but it's exact it's it's hard to like specify like what it entails or what it amounts to but <laughs> right. it's all very important yeah i mean just think about like how we how we just like do this with our kids it's sort yeah. of a funny thing to say say you're sorry and mean it yeah. <laughs> like you know <laughs> um <laughs> I remember Eliza when she was like two and a half or something and she did something bad and someone and you know Jen would say say sorry to your dad and she would say sorry and she, would pet me. she would pet me like I was a cat like on the head or on the like, shoulder you go sorry and then it's like all right I did like I don't I didn't think there that that was I don't know <laughs> she saw true. me as a moral equal my my daughter used to do this like like say that we're playing and she kind of hits me in a way that, that like didn't really hurt me but i was like ow you know like don't do that she would <laughs> she failed these criteria so badly she would tell me that didn't hurt 
And I would say, like, what do you mean it didn't hurt? And then she would hit herself in the same exact way. She's like, no, it doesn't hurt. <laughs> I'd be like, don't disagree with me. You don't know what hurts me. <laughs> yeah, that is kind of the opposite. Of <laughs> um, but this is really important. And, like, and I think a lot of this stuff, it's hard to fake, too. Yeah. Um, you know, like the emotional and, the, you know, like looking somebody in the eye that, you know, the gen, like, I think this is psychologically difficult to fake. And so that's part of why it has value. I think it's interesting to think, like, I think there is stuff that's interpersonally, like it's, it's, uh, um, specifically about how you act with the person you're apologizing to. I think it's cult, like culturally there are different norms that like all the these all go into how you're doing it and like i feel like we can really read when somebody means it and when somebody doesn't i don't know if anybody's done the study to show like here's somebody trying to fake an apology and here's somebody trying to give a genuine one but yeah it would be hard like like how do you have a find somebody who's giving a genuine apology (laughs) 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 we used harvey weinstein this is why apologies are so meaningful is because it's hard to fake a lot of these things. Yeah. It's hard because that's the aspect that you can't read, like what I was getting at with say you're sorry and mean it. You you could take a lot of these as just sort of a guide to like how to make your apology sound better. But you right. can't, like what are you going to do with the, feel genuine regret. <laughs> right. This is why face-to-face apologies are especially powerful, I think, is, yeah, you're looking the person in the yeah. eyes and you're, uh, you're incurring a cost. All of, these yeah, you're incurring the cost of confessing to the wrong too. Like you are running the risk that it's going to permanently damage the relationship in some way, given that you're admitting to it. I yeah. saw, by the way, in my in my YouTube this afternoon, Ellen DeGeneres apologize for like I guess over the summer last year <laughs> she had been accused of being you know like creating this terrible atmosphere in her show. I, I had heard about that by the way on the is it the MGM studio tour? Is that the one that you you've been on to? Uh, Warner Brothers. Or, yeah. Warner yeah. Brothers. Yeah. <laughs> the, the the tour guide was like, yeah, she's uh, really <laughs> she runs a tight ship. <laughs> yeah, this was like a and this was like three years ago or something. That's like that. yeah. hilarious. She's uh, she can be a little prickly if you. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> if you do the wrong thing. And so so in her apology at the beginning of the season after this happened, like when COVID was still happening, so it was it was only a virtual audience, but like she was cracking jokes during it, you mm-hmm. know, like as if it was her monologue. And and there appeared to be just a laugh track to the jokes, which was just really weird. And you're like, well, she doesn't mean any of this. Like she's she's like the kid who's being dragged out and being told to apologize. Yeah, right. Yeah, in cases where there's a clear, where it should be a one-to-one apology, like I've wronged this other person, yeah. if if I hear a public apology, but then hear that the person didn't actually apologize to the victim, um, it's t- just, I don't believe it. So, so like, do you, uh, do you know Chrissy Teigen? Uh, why well, I know who that is, but I mean, like yeah. I, I've heard the name, so but I have no idea in reference to what she's like a model. She's married to John Legend, and apparently, people uncovered all of these like super. She was just like a uh, an internet bully to people. She would tell people like, "Go kill yourself," like shit, like bad shit. Yeah. And so when they uncovered it, you know, she's I think already twice like apologized and been just like super like throw herself on the sword, kind of like I know I don't deserve any. But then I heard, like, one of the people that she had really harassed when she yeah. was just being a troll said, like, sh- she never reached out to me. 
Like, and that com- to me is just compl- like, well, then fuck it. Like, I don't believe a goddamn word that you're saying. Like, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. You have to be as personal as it's possible for you to be. Yeah. Um, for for it to be for you to really believe it. Yeah. Um, the last thing is reform and reparations. Yeah. That I have listed. I mean, yeah. I think that's like. That's a big part of an apology in one sense, or it, I, but I would almost think it's more like buttressing an apology r- rather than part being part of an apology. Yeah, uh, and it super depends on like there you run the risk of making it seem sometimes. And I, obviously, context always matters, but you make it you, you run the risk of making it seem as if whatever you do to make amends like materially like is it just sounds like you're trying to buy buy off an apology sometimes when you say like Mm -hmm. i like here's one thing i think we've talked about this that i like i find really annoying when people are like you know i was a horrible asshole you know i raped three women i'm going to donate a hundred thousand dollars to like the battered women's shelter it's like right well i I get that's good in a consequentialist way (laughs) right but like that doesn't convince me at all of your sincerity and and i'd be reluctant to i'd be like a little un suspicious that you think that this is going to make things better (laughs) right it's almost worse (laughs) because you think that'll make up for it or something like that even if like it's obviously not worse in one sense like because it's better for them to have the money than not but it almost seems like you're trying to buy your way out of responsibility and blame it's tricky so like a lot of people will say on these online apologies well i don't want i don't care about your apology show me what you're going to do about it and then sometimes you just what can you do like what like what could you possibly do especially when there's a nebulous victim like uh michael richards (laughs) apology for saying the n-word during his stand it's just it's terrible like it's a it's it's cringy jerry seinfeld brought him in like on, i think it was letterman or something that seinfeld was appearing on and he's and this it was soon after what the yeah, letterman yeah, yeah and and so they brought him in via like satellite and had had him issue this apology and it was really awkward <laughs> among the things that were awkward is that he, he apologized to afro-americans <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, I remember. I'm, Afro-Americans may have been offended. That's, yes. <laughs> In cases where you've said a racial slur, for instance, who? Yeah. what do you do? Like, what, are you supposed to cut a check to the NAACP? Like, it's unclear how you even go about redressing. Like, There's nothing you can do. There's no, it's too diffuse, like, the your victims. It's too, like, uh, really what you want to know is that the person is not a terrible person and that they uh, are going to be better in the future. And so, like, I think that's what you want. Like, I just think sorry is not the right word. It's not, or at least an apology is not the right word for what's what you can do there. It's more publicly, like, signal... That you are going, that you're aware of what you did, and you're going to try to be better. Yeah, I, I, I actually think that those are cases where apologies can backfire, and I'm almost of the opinion that you shouldn't apologize when it's so nebulous. Yeah, like, when your victims are so yeah, nebulous. when your victims. Yeah, there is a way that like these famous people apologize that really rubs me the wrong way for some reason. It's when they say like, "I've let my fans down." Yeah, and it's like. Okay. This, the fuck cares about like letting your fans down like That's talk about the, the person issue. you hurt <laughs> like yeah yeah no i think public apology it, it's so rare 
for a public apology to feel satisfying. Yeah. And partly it's because, you know, can we talk about the Louis C? I think the Louis C.K. one is kind of interesting because both you and I thought that's a pretty decent apology when it came out in the New York in, in the Times, and it was roundly attacked. And I'm I kind of am interested as to a like you know it was that were those concerns legitimate, but also b why people reacted to it that way. So this was for people who some somehow don't know about this. <laughs> Louis C.K. used to want to masturbate in front of women, and so she would ask he he would ask women, you know, like I'm going to whip my dick out and masturbate. Is, is that all right with you? Uh, and they would be put in the position of like having to say yes or no. And this was including when you know he was pretty famous and they were might be up and coming, and so they might feel pressure to to say yes. And then also. He does seem like his manager kind of pressured a lot of these women not to go public about this habit of Louis C.K.'s. Uh, and so f- the Times publishes a story, or it's at the Times or the New Yorker, like Ronan Farrow or something, it's probably, of uh, these five women who discussed this, uh, what had happened to them, and he wrote a fairly long, right away, a fairly long apology to the New York Times that was published. Yeah. And I remember when this first happened, we did an episode on it, and we were like, that seems pretty legit. Yeah. Um, and But it was just not... It wasn't taken well, and I don't know. I Like, I haven't... I never really followed up with why it wasn't taken well. I am reading it now as you're speaking, and at the end he says... I've spent my long and lucky career talking and saying anything I want. I will now step back and take a long time to listen. Thank you for reading. That I actually think is the right thing to do. Like, right. I think that him stepping away, like, I can see him being like, wow, I fucked up. Like, I'm just, like, I don't deserve to be, like, in the public eye right now. I can see why people might now, I guess, think that he didn't do enough to, like, make up for his actions. But... I actually am still, I'm still good with this apology. I mean, so he goes into like, you know, why it was wrong. Like he meets a lot of these criteria. Now, now the one thing we don't know is like what the facts in question are. He certainly checks off some of the facts, but like he definitely underplays like the, his role in maybe getting the manager to pressure these women to keep quiet about it and stuff like that. So that might be one part of it. Oh, let me read this uh, sentence because this is all this actually now thinking about it might be bad. So he says these stories are true, which is his, his only real admission about the he, this is the only time he really talks about the, the act except for this sentence. At the time, I said to myself that what I did was OK because I never showed a woman my dick without asking first, which is also true. But what I learned later in life too late is that when you have power of another person asking them to look at your dick isn't a question. It's sort of justifying in a way that like it, it borders on being like, well, I always asked. That's true. Like it, right, exactly. <laughs> like like making a, yeah, no, I think that's maybe part of it, is that it seemed to minimize what he was doing. There's also this... this the suspicion because he's crafted this persona that seems like a good, like a really good guy. Yeah, that's what we felt for. That's what, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, like, it's gonna be really hard now to, you know. But at the same time, this is what Harmon 
said, you know, the same thing about himself. I guess he was self-aware of the fact that he had crafted this persona in a way that Louis C.K. isn't. Yeah. Like, he's not sort of recognizing that, you know, that that he's he's crafted this persona that says disgusting things, but it's ultimately like a really good feminist at heart. Yeah. And and yet he, you know, like and he doesn't try to reconcile that with what he did. Yeah. There is there is a, a little whiff of what I think are bad celebrity apologies where they spend a lot of time talking about themselves in a way that I think Dan Harmon talked about himself, but he made it clear that it was centered around what he had done to this woman. And Louis C.K. says, you know, there is nothing about this that I forgive myself for and I have to reconcile it with who I am, which is nothing compared to the task I left them with. One, he doesn't go into enough detail about, like, the harm that he might have caused these people. Like, I, I'm curious to know whether or not he, speci- like, he went and, uh, and apologized. I mean, not... I don't to know them. If they, yeah, yeah, I don't know if they wanted that, but um, just another difficulty. The, Sometimes people don't want you to be, like, there and apologize. Like, and, and I think there has been, like, probably 10 years for some of the women yeah. where they've wanted him to uh, acknowledge this and he hadn't. But then also when he says the hardest regret to live with is what you've done to hurt someone else and I can hardly wrap my head around the scope of hurt I brought on them. I'd be remiss to exclude the hurt that I've brought on people who I work with and have worked with and whose professional and personal lives have been impacted by all of this, including projects currently in production, the cast and crew of Better Things, Baskets, the cops, one Mississippi, I love you, daddy. It almost sounds like he's like bragging about like, how much shit I, <laughs> I, I'm involved in. And, 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 it, and he's diffusing the apology at yeah. that point. Like, like, yeah. so I, I, you know, it's interesting cause I also, I, I kind of glanced through it before we recorded and I was like, it still seems like a pretty good apology, <laughs> yeah. but now like going through totally. it, I, 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 I get, I get why yeah. people, Me too. Yeah. Me too. um, yeah. Y- diffusing the apology is exactly right. Like it's, it shouldn't have been a one for all kind of apology like he should have focused on on the victims and you know like why do i care that he's apologizing right. to the crew of, i know that he fucked them over like i, I don't it doesn't seem that relevant to what it's like oh like i'm gonna kill like five birds with one stone here <laughs> yeah. i'm gonna apologize to all these people and like and again like it's weird also it's a little weird that it's in the times i mean yeah. this is the, this is the parrot the paradox or the tension with public apologies yeah. is why like why are we reading this like yeah. why are he should be doing it to those people and the fa- and, and it's weird the fact that it's here almost takes away from its insincerity because it makes it sound like he has maybe ulterior motives it's a really odd position that some people are in to have to apologize publicly like this or like via press release i mean i guess like not that we're i'm we're a little on dan Harmon's nuts like but but i guess <laughs> that's that's like the best right. you can do i because like the, <laughs> the, the real thing you have to do is like sexually harass someone for two and a half years but then do like a great apology <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah let's be clear i wish he hadn't done you're that. like a hero <laughs> <laughs> they're very bad wizards like here uh yeah i i don't know like i've thought about say say that you said something in class that offended somebody and you get you know all this the you know the the hammer of social justice come down on you um would you <laughs> finally would you would you do something like a issue a statement i think we t- we've talked about this i think like pro- almost certainly 
not unless like, I don't know, like I had some reason to think that they want, like A, if I think I actually did anything wrong. Right. So I would need to actually believe that before yeah. I would do a public apology. And then B, like I would have to think that they wanted it. Like either they asked me to or I had some reason to think that they wanted that they wanted me to do it publicly. Then maybe I would. But like, um, you know, this is one of the we're not uh, too high uh, <laughs> when it, on the fame spectrum that like that many people give a shit about these kinds of things. So yeah, but, uh, but univers- that aren't the per- people involved. Yeah. Universities are tricky like that because we are sort of public facing to all of our students. And so, right. so it might happen. Have you, have you ever had to apologize? No. In your like, yeah, never. Uh, in your professional capacity, never. Uh, there was there was one time I probably talked about this. There was one time that a student emailed me and told me that um, she asked me if I could not curse as much in lectures because it offended her as a Christian, and I just emailed back and said, "I I apologize. I never mean to offend anybody. Like sometimes I do curse, and and I'll try to turn it down." what's i didn't again to me it's like i didn't it was not a huge infraction and she was respectful and like i don't know if i changed my behavior but i just wanted her to know that like i cared about how she felt and just responding to her i think she appreciated um but that's as close as i've ever come like to to having an apology i am learning that your apologies are Oh, uh, you think that they're not costly so, enough. When in fact, what yeah. it is, is that I have become, I am not only sensitive about myself, I'm deeply sensitive about hurting others. So I know all the pain that they're experiencing. So I am quick to apologize because of that. You know, just because I don't self-flagellate like you want me to. I, <laughs> no, I want you to literally <laughs> just start whipping yourself. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I mean, I meant it. Like I... What would you do in that situation if someone said, could you not curse? Well, that's an interesting one because you're ultimately still going to curse in class. The only reason you might tone it down a little bit this one semester for this one student, but like you're not doing any of those things. You're not reaffirming those moral principles because you don't really think you violated a moral principle. But I do think I offended her and I don't want to offend her. And so I think that toning it down for that semester is exactly the right action. Because yeah, but I'm saying as an apology, yeah. qua apology, <laughs> it's a little weird because you don't think it was wrong. You're just you're like you are almost literally sorry that she was offended. No, but this is this is the thing that like why I I I feel like apologies seem harder than they ought to be, which is I feel like it's wrong to unintentionally hurt someone. I don't think it's of course I don't think it's wrong to curse in class because like what you know I wouldn't if I really thought it was wrong. But unwittingly harming somebody through your actions is something that I don't ever want to do. And so if I find out that I did completely unintentionally, and even if I find out that it's because of something that I don't personally think is wrong, then I don't want, I don't want anybody to feel harmed by what I did. So I'm happy to apologize for that. But it's like, but yeah, I guess the thing is it just doesn't meet a lot of these criteria because you're not accepting responsibility in the sense that you're not saying, oh, I should have I should have been concerned about whether there might be a religious student that takes offense to these things. You don't, you're not accepting blame for what you no, did. No, of course I'm accepting you, blame. 
I just, it, the thing is, what do you do in a situation where what, what you've done to harm somebody, like the target to me is that I, that I harmed, not what, what I did to harm. So like, I, I feel like in, if, if what you're saying is in order to meet the criteria, I have to agree that cursing is wrong, then, then I'll never be able to apologize for that. But like, I feel like what I have to agree to it is, is knowing that I offended somebody in any way. That's wrong. Right. That's and- it's wrong in the sense that, um, you know, it's, it's unfortunate that something that you did led to, um, this w- woman being offended, but it feels like you're not actually signaling in any way that this is something a, that you could be blamed for in the sense that it's your fault, like you could have anticipated it. And then B, it's not signaling much change, at least in future behavior, aside from this one semester where you know you have this. Right. Student well, I didn't who, like, like I, ears bleed when you say fuck. <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, I think what I was admitting to was some level of negligence for, for not realizing that there might be a student sensitive to that cursing. But what would you do? I mean, I would do the same thing. <laughs> I would say I'm sorry, and I would be genuinely feel regret that that happened. But I guess I'm not sure if I would call that an apology in this more thick, this thicker sense of because I don't think I'm blameworthy. I think like you know, look, we, you can't yeah. please everybody. And all right, shut, Charlie. Hold on one. Yeah. I apologize for Charlie. Interrupt <laughs> on behalf of on behalf of Charlie. <laughs> right, uh, but you know what I mean. Like I, I guess I would I, I would be sorry in 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 a in a real sense that like that she was upset and that I had led I had done something, but like I don't know if I would call it an apology. Maybe sorry is better. Like I'm being conceptual analysis. Yeah, yeah, you really are nitpicky. So let let me give you another example where I think. Um, it's tr- it's true what you're saying about the thickness of the apology concept, but I think that if, but it requires a thick infraction to have a thick apology. So I think a thin infraction and a thin apology are actually still an apology. I agree with that. I sincerely don't want to offend, so I apologize for that. But at the same time, I wanted to communicate that I did not endorse that view because if I did, then I would be a real ass. Like if I actually thought it was morally wrong to curse and I was cursing, then I would be a terrible person. And I wanted her to understand that what she was asking of me was something that I was willing to do because I care about how she's feeling in the class, but not something that I wanted to co-sign. Right. And, and communicating that is It's tricky because like it is a partial apology, you know? Yeah. Like, and, and it has a little of the whiff of I'm sorry if you were offended. But I think a lot of the time we make fun of I'm sorry if you were offended because the person doesn't mean it. But in this case, you're genuinely sorry yeah. if she was offended, but you just don't endorse the norm for taking offense right. at things like that. Right. That's why I like I think there is an interesting difference between I'm sorry that I offended you versus I'm sorry that you were offended. And it might just right. be <laughs> semantic in the bad way, but, but I feel <laughs> right. like. Like I'm taking agency for it. Yeah. Well, that's that's my big scandal. <laughs> <laughs> Next. No, this has given us a lot to work with. Can um, you imagine all you. the shit we've said here? Like, you know, I've ne- we never really know. had to apologize for any of it. <laughs> all right. I think we've... We've exhausted the apology. Yeah. 
now I never want to talk about apologies again. <laughs> no, this was good. Yeah, you, um, should, you should say, join us next time on Very Bad Wizards. I, 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 I'm aware. <laughs> you know what's funny is that we forgot to do the we'll be right back uh, when we come back for the last episode. Uh, so I don't know if you noticed, but I had to record me doing yeah, that afterwards. Somebody, somebody called you on being drunk. Did you see that? Oh, for the segue. No, it was like yeah. No, I wasn't drunk. It was just that it was like different recording. <laughs> yeah. Like it was a different, <laughs> yeah. and so and it was so obviously a different <laughs> recording, which is I don't totally understand why it would be so different. Yeah. Um, oh, I thought he was talking about my wine dot com. No, no, no. Uh, he was talking about that. He 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 was accusing you of slurring during that chest, <laughs> which little. is funny because I had literally had it like 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 memorized, and I probably did like seven versions of it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, when we come back, we're going to yeah. talk about uh, transformative experiences. Yeah. I think I just like I was so self conscious about saying it that that's why the person. Yeah, oh, that's funny. But it's it's absolutely true though that the recording, even when you're in the same room, yeah, recording at different time can sound so different. And I think one one reason is our voices actually change throughout the day a little bit. Yeah, like. <laughs> right. I had a totally different voice. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, okay. All, right, All right. right. Join us next time on Very Bad Wizard. The Canadian boss has spoken. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Who are you? Who are you? A very bad man. I'm a very good man. Good man. Just a very bad wizard.